you don't gain discipline by structure. You, you do the little disciplines, and that creates the sort of structure you want in your life to whatever extent you want it. Firm on principle, flexible on method, right? That's what the 12 traditions preach, right? You know, there's no absolutes. Hey, sober people and sober adjacent people. Welcome to I Have 12 Questions. I'm Amanda Patton, your host, the leading expert on nothing. However, I am in recovery and I love it so much so that I launched this podcast where we get to talk to people who are trudging the road to happy freaking destiny across all the different ways that people get there. So while this is definitely through the lens of recovery and sobriety, these stories and the themes that we'll be covering are universally human. So love, loss, grief, excitement, parenting, outside issues, purpose, God stuff, whatever. In the words of the great Ted Lasso by way of Walt Whitman, I want to be curious, not judgmental. So like I said, we'll be talking to people in recovery. We're going to be talking to experts and practitioners who help those people along their path in recovery. And we're just really excited to hear people tell their stories and to be inspired by them and to create a community of support for everybody in recovery and people who know and love people who struggle with addiction issues and whatnot. So anyways, we're so glad you're here and thanks for listening. Hey listeners, just a quick disclaimer before we get into the interview, the views and opinions expressed by those interviewed on I Have 12 Questions or myself are just opinions and our own personal experiences. We are not doctors or therapists or psychiatrists, so none of the recommendations or opinions expressed should be considered medical or psychological advice. There may be adult language contained in some of these episodes, as well as triggers around conversations regarding rape, sexual abuse, drug and alcohol usage, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and many other topics that will come up when we are discussing addiction and recovery from addiction. So please use discretion. This podcast is not for everybody. Thank you. All right, so let's get started. I'm Amanda Patton, and this is I Have 12 Questions. And today with us, we have Joe C. And he is the author of Beyond Belief, Agnostic Musings for the 12-Step Life. And I have read out of this reader every single day for years, and I love it so much. And I actually cannot believe that I'm getting to talk to the author. So I'm pretty, pretty stoked about that. Joe, welcome to the show. I'm so excited. And welcome to podcasting. I, I'm glad you've joined the community. Oh, thank you. It's a steep learning curve, but I'm I'm really excited to be part of the podcast community. I appreciate that. Um, it's a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> I don't know what I thought it was going to be, but wow, oh, it's a lot of work. So anyways, it's important to me though, so I'm, I'm down. Well, I think there's room for plenty more. Like we sort of talked about that on the side too. And I don't exactly know where we'll be going because you've got your 12 questions. But I think uh, it's the best time ever for people to be looking for recovery because of all of these different mediums that we uh, recreate one person with substance use disorder talking to another person with substance use disorder. So you go. 
you go. Absolutely. And the book is 10 years old, right? Um, and I think last month. Uh, and so it's kind of a cool anniversary to be supporting it um, at this time on the podcast. And it came into my life, like I said, four or five years ago. And it's just been a huge part of my daily ritual. I actually talk to people about it, you know, all the time. It's almost like a book club around some of the topics. Uh, and, you know, I know that you're involved with the ICSAA, which is the International uh, Conference of Secular AA. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that's even a thing, whether you're in traditional AA or you've got, you know, rational recovery or recovery dharma. I mean, there's so many, there's so many ways that we do it now. Um, but I was just really happy to learn that that whole world existed and to be able to expand my horizons. Yes, uh, I'm a member of that community. I no longer sit on the uh, committee that sort of uh, runs them, but I, I did a tour of duty, sort of uh, the spirit of rotation came along and some other people have taken the helm. But uh, yeah, that was uh, great work. Okay, so I'm going to brag on you just a little bit more real quick. So um you know, we have a pretty good following so far, but anyone who doesn't know, or maybe you're just now hearing this for the first time and don't know me, um, I've been in active recovery since 2013, and I have a literal library at my house of books and daily readers that I've acquired over the years. I've either bought them, people gave them to me as gifts, and they cover every perspective from biblical to Buddhist to neuroscience to tarot. Um, therapy, self-help modalities. I mean, and so when somebody gave me this book, I was like, oh my God, where has this been all my life, all the, all my recovery? Um, so like I said, I read it every day and um, they're sometimes really cerebral in nature and take me down some rabbit holes, uh, both emotional and intellectually, which I quite enjoy. Um, but it's also good to just meditate and think about on, think about these things Um and talk, you know, have cool, fun, deep, interesting conversations with people. So I, again, Joe, I'm so excited that you're here. Um, and you have a ton of incredible resources out in the world for agnostics, non-believers, free thinkers, all of that stuff. Uh, rebelliondogspublishing.com, where people can listen to your podcast. They can order your book or gift your book. Um, there's tons of tools and resources out there to connect this part of our uh, recovery communities. And so... Again, um, thank you for making it a more spacious place for more people uh, to step in. And uh, it it allows us to just be more open and love and tolerance is our code, right? Um, to me, anything that smacks of a bleeding deacon or dogma, it's just, or, you know, this is the only way you can do this thing and everything else is, you know, wrong. I That turns me off in a heartbeat. I, I cannot... I don't want to hang out in environments like that. Um, so this is this has really been such a breath of fresh air. And um, so before we get started in our conversation, I just wanted to thank you for putting that out into the ether and helping me and so many other people. I, I'm delighted you like it, and I'm delighted to hear it, someone uh, bought it for you. I think it's wonderful to share books with people you love. Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast is because I've been in a bubble for so long and you get used to the same things, talking to the same people about the same stuff, same meetings, you know? And, um, so again, it, this really opened uh, a pathway 
to open-mindedness and alternative pathways. And not that you have to pick one or the other, you can pick and choose components of all kinds of different uh, practices. So um, real quick though, before we get into questions of your interrogation, I want to read an excerpt from the book. Um, It's out of the preface on page 11. And you say, survival of the 12-step movement depends on the delicate balancing act of sticking to our principles while adapting to our environment. We could grow alternately. We could stall and shrink. Imagine if we celebrated the 100th year of the 12 steps with the few thousand faithful members huddled around the carefully preserved 164 pages of the big book. Like other change-resistant cultures, such as the Amish or Mennonites, the world would view us as charming, harmless, and irrelevant. Bill Wilson wrote, AA will always have its traditionalists, its fundamentalists, and its relativists. Each camp looks at stewardship differently. For example, anonymity means something different to most members with 21st century dry dates than it does to baby boomer old timers. Spiritual lingo, rituals, and what defines outside issues, in quotes, are all subject to review by generation next. So um, with that, I'm going to open up our conversation with a question about elaborating on on your perspective on that and that is um how do you feel about the rules and rituals and guidelines guidelines regarding anonymity well as i've done some research into well the broad recovery community and some of the science around it some of the studying that's been done it it's included the alcoholics anonymous archives and I look in there and I find that people have been afraid of change since the 50s. Uh, Bill Wilson and some of the other founders, they were pioneers and they think differently. And imagine if Henry Ford had turned his company over to the employees Uh they would probably still be making the Model T saying, if it's broke, don't fix it. Because they're not pioneers, they're followers. And and our generation of uh, my generation, I'll sort of own this, of uh, people in recovery are responsible for the reification or the sort of hardening or the sort of uh, dogma of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or maybe the larger 12-step community. It isn't the founders because he didn't picture us still reading the same 164 pages. I think he was starting a conversation, not finishing a conversation. And I think he would be uh, dumbfounded to see us uh, so proud of how we've preserved everything. Now, when I say that, I want to also say that this uh, sort of reading the big book exactly as written uh, with a sponsor who has a sponsor, that works. That gets people sober. It creates a certain amount of structure to people who have come through addiction with a great deal of chaos. And the change from chaos to order uh, will help outcome rates. But it's not going to work for everybody. There are some people that need at least as much spontaneity as structure in their recovery, and they have to be invited to disagree with things, to bring in new things, uh, to go a different direction. And those are all legitimate pathways for recovery. 
I love that. Very, very well said. Um, and there's a lot of open-ended questions that you bring up and it's a conversation that evolves, like you're saying. Um, and some people are going to be offended by it, uh, and, and other people will be inspired by it. So, um, I guess there's, there's the structure that programs offer, and there's also the spontaneity and figuring out how to balance all that stuff. Uh, there will always be two camps for any book-based society. And the more that we can uh, give each other space and give each other room, if you read the book Living Sober, it says there is no right way or wrong way to do AA. The point is that each of us uses what works for us. And the things we set aside, we're setting them aside for now. Maybe we'll turn to them later. And we always respect each other's right to do things in their own way. So there's the preserve the integrity of the message camp. And there's another camp called the widening the gateway camp, right? That's too old. Let's do something new. Uh, you know, let's make sure that there are no uh, barriers, just bridges. And the other camp saying, no, everything is fine just the way it is. Uh, we're not racist. We're not sexist. Uh, we're not religious. We're, you know, and, you know, those people in each camp are helping other people get sober. And no one has found a meeting yet where everybody gets sober and that meeting gets along with all of the other meetings. And if they do, I'm going to encourage my home group to do exactly what they do, but that hasn't happened yet. So we should keep experimenting. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've noticed in, you know, some of the secular and many paths to spirituality, uh, different literature and, and particularly in the secular meetings uh, or agnostic meetings, just this really big broadening of concepts and changing of the language and trying to, well, not trying to, staying true to the fundamentals of what we know works, um, but also allowing for that kind of um, evolution and expansion and knowing that we have to stay flexible. Um, and, you know, if it's keeping you sober, whatever the thing is, uh, that's good, right? That's the whole point. That's exactly. Yeah. One so, of my favorite Montreal meetings is called Whatever Works. And what a great <laughs> title for a meeting. See, I love that name, Whatever Works. That's great. Um, that's exactly the kind of energy I'm looking for because you can mix people who have all kinds of different opinions. And guess what? You still get along because ultimately there's one goal, right? Um, so we're just trying to stay sober and we're helping each other do that in whatever way people are comfortable with. So, okay. Another question. Can you tell me about your path into recovery? I know it's been a really long time for you, but, um, you know, what prompted that? What was that like for you? Uh, well, you know, it's been a long time. You see, I, I see recovery as a journey, not a, a destination. And it, it's not based on my whole life has been wonderful ever since I, uh, the last time I used drugs or alcohol, and my life was crap before that. So, you know, if we go back to the time where I got clean and sober, when phones were stuck to walls and people listened to disco music, uh, you know, I stumbled into sobriety. I knew about AA because 
you know, I wasn't the first alcoholic in my family, and I wasn't the first AA member either. So I knew AAs, like I'm a second generation AA member in our family. And so I knew about it, but it just, it seemed like a punishment for admitting I was an alcoholic, uh, that sobriety was going to be some provisional life not worth living. And it wasn't until I was asked to help out another member in our family, a cousin of mine, and I thought, yeah, I, I, I want to do that. I want to help them. And so I took them to meetings, and we would talk about the meeting after the meeting, and we would go with other people to meetings and conferences and this and that. And I think my exit strategy was to get them sober and then go uh, face my fate, which was dying a tragic alcoholic death, which in early sobriety sounded more romantic than living sober for all of these years. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean, right? You know, it's just things like, you know, someone says, oh, you're so young, you're so lucky. Oh, yeah, right. You don't have to live 40 New Year's Eve sober. But it's so true. It's so true. And um when people, I mean, this is terrible to say, but when I see people try to get sober uh, and they're like, you know, 60 or 70 years old, I'm like, oh, they made it that whole time. They got to drink for so long. Like, good for you. you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Which, you know, isn't, that's not reality, right? There's probably a lot of pain and damage as a result of all those extra years of drinking to themselves and their family. So I, I totally understand that. But um, that's my first, you know, alcoholic addict uh, interpretation, the having to choose between an alcoholic death or living, living sober. Um, it's, it's, it's mind blowing to normal people that we would have to be like, huh, I don't know. Let me think about that. Yeah. But the explanation point to my early sobriety was I, I didn't accept I had a problem. I wasn't being completely honest about having to give up completely. I was saying all the right things because that's how I hid out in plain view. I, I, I knew that if I questioned the whole uh, higher power stuff or I questioned the alcoholism is a fatal permanent condition, that people would surround me and gang up on me. So I said all the right things like I, like you have to when you're a young alcoholic addict, right? I often will say, I couldn't walk into a bar at 15 and say, I'm really thirsty. I'm only 15. Can we work something out? I had to act like if I didn't own the place, I knew the person who did and get me a drink right away. And, and, and so I just, that's how I lived. So I came into AA with the same bullshit facade uh, while I tried to sort of plan my escape. So what were your religious or spiritual influences, if any, when you were growing up? LSD. <laughs> Before that, I, I was, my father was an atheist and my mother had some sort of Protestant religion. And when they got married for a need to please his parents, my father put us in Catholic school. And so we grew up Catholic out of this weird arrangement that, okay, we're Catholics because our family is Catholic. So I went to a Catholic school and, and participated in a Catholic religion. And I, I really 
you know, and I, I no harm came to me. Uh, you know, I didn't, it wasn't a thrill. It wasn't uh, uh, frightening. It, uh, plenty of things didn't make any sense to me, but that was true of all of life. And I, I let go of it the same way I, you know, it, it wasn't any more significant to me than believing in a tooth fairy or Santa Claus or, you know, other magical thinking I went through, like this idea of a collective consciousness or early in my recovery, the first Star Wars came out. So whether you'd seen the movie or not, everyone talked about the force, you know, uh, being trapped in the dark side of the force or finding recovery and being in the good side of the force. And that was the zeitgeist of the moment. So all of these things have been influences. And in the youth of my sobriety, I had this, I think, uh, you know, a, a joyful approach to AA that anything was possible. And because I don't know if it's because I'm an addict or alcoholic, but but I I was predisposed to some types of magical thinking. So so I I really had hope that you know some of this stuff would literally be true that I would be freed of you know my unattractive characteristics and you know I would sort of the road to happy destiny would be an escalator, right? Only upward, never downward. And none of that stuff is true. Uh, you know, I'm, I get to be sober. That's a wonderful reward. Uh, I've had an awakening, but I don't know if it was a rude awakening or a spiritual awakening because I, I certainly haven't had a, a religious experience in AA. I'm one of those people that falls into that uh, educational variety. And, and I, I don't think I was so stupid then and I'm so smart now. I, I've, I've learned enough to don't say too much because, you know, things will change my mind in the future. I'm sure they will. Yeah, because you're staying, you're staying open. Right. And that's it, avoiding that rigidity. Um, and this, you know, this is the truth and speaking in absolutes. And um, if this happens or it's going to be like that. And if that doesn't happen, it's the end of the world. It's all that kind of, you know, all in all or nothing, black or white thinking. And I think every, every time I'm listening to you talk, it's just, it's all so relatable. Why do you call it stagnant? Yeah. To me, stagnant just means that, you know, if I think I know something, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask questions anymore. I'm not going to research it and try to expand my, my understanding. And then I can get arrogant or, you know, set my ways or whatever. And I've done that in other areas of my life. Um, and so I, I need to have lively conversations with people that maybe I don't agree with, or maybe they're just bringing up an idea that's intriguing to me, but it's scary. Um, and maybe I'm resisting it, you know? And so that's why I like to kind of keep moving and keep challenging my, my under my understanding and my perspective. Um, because when I have a negative reaction to someone or something, uh, I need to look at what's underneath that, you know, and that usually initially makes me feel uncomfortable um, or defensive or whatever. So I can understand when other people do it. I, um, it's just a, you know, it's a process that's going to happen for the rest of my life. Hopefully if I'm, if I stay open to it. 
Have you ever read uh, Alan Berger's book about emotional sobriety? Well, he's got these 12 insights, and it's based on some, you know, late, mid to late life Bill Wilson writings about emotional sobriety. And, and one of the 12 precepts is of emotional sobriety or emotional intelligence or just maturity, whatever you'd call it, is realizing that nobody's coming, right? You know, not, not from up there. There's you and me and the friends around us. That's what we have to work with. So let's, let's not wait for something more. We've got lots to work with right here. Right. Yeah. Just this moment. And so that, that question or that comment kind of segues into my, uh, one of my other um, questions I wanted to ask you. And I mean, you're a really great writer and a deep thinking, a deep thinking person. Do you ever feel like your intellect has gotten or gets in the way of sobriety? It, it can, and it has, and it will again, right? Because I'm not trying to transcend my humanity. But uh, getting back to what you were talking about, the beginner's mind, that's, that's how I can... Here's a great expression I heard on another podcast I was listening to that no matter how long you've been driving on the highway, whether you're going from New York to California or wherever you're going, you're still the same distance from the ditch. In other words, I, I'm on my journey of recovery, but I can, I can fall off balance really easily. But I can get back on balance, and I don't have to go all the way back to the beginning. I just have to get the car back on the middle of the road and, and continue on. So when that happens, and it's going to, when I uh, think I know everything, when I think I've got this all figured out, when I'm much happier with my way of looking at things and your stupid way of looking at things, when I'm in that frame of mind, I just have to remember that not knowing is true knowledge. Presuming to know is like a disease and that there, I should neither be for nor against any issue that we're discussing. And there is no Lord and no subject. So we're all equal, right? A person with days of sobriety has an equal uh, value to add to the conversation as someone with decades of sobriety. So uh, I, I can't avoid going there, but I can get back to that sort of center space. Yes, that's great. That's a great one. I like the ditch analogy. Um, and I, I think that way all the time of my own recovery. And I've told a lot of people who are newer that when they share in meetings, I learn more from them. Sometimes somebody who... <laughs> has been sober for a couple hours, you know, or a couple of weeks and they're just in the thick of it, man. Cause that first year, good Lord, it sucks. I mean, it was, it was terrible for me. It was terrible. Um, but I learn a lot from people who are newer sometimes than I do from people who have 30, 40 years of recovery. So, um, I just want to stay a student and I want to, I want to stay open, you know, and also when you're talking to people who are closer to their last drink, um, there's just this palpable pain, you know, and suffering and that self-loathing we have of like, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep doing this? Um, and so I need to remember that's where it takes me. You know, that's where it's always going to take me. I have 
I have, um, <laughs> I've tried a lot of new different creative ways to uh, make it work out for me. And it just, it never did, you know, so I had to surrender. And, um, sometimes now that it's been quite a while since I have gotten into recovery, it's easy for me to forget how bad it was. Right. So my next question was, how do you have fun? You know, just unadulterated, free. I, I sometimes feel like I've lost my ability to have fun. I, I turn every hobby into a second career and, you know, make uh, projects and deadlines out of it. But but uh, l- let's go with that. Joe, the fun person in recovery. <laughs> you know, if I'm exercising, I, I want to go harder and faster. If I'm skiing, I want to be world class. If I'm playing softball, I want to hit the ball every time and never fumble a ball. I, you know, that's so funny because everyone I talk to in recovery, they say the same thing. They're like, I don't know. I guess that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and when people ask me what I do for fun, I'm like, uh, eat? Yeah. And I'm like, I enjoy a lot of things. I have fun while I'm doing certain things, but I don't, I don't, um, you know, necessarily have a hobby or something that I go do uh, for fun. Right. And, and honestly, I'm more interested in having a meaningful life, doing things that uh, give me a sense of meaning. Um, maybe a sense of mastery comes with some of them, but just something that feels like it's worthwhile. And I heard someone say one of these Sen guru type YouTube clips that was very helpful to me. And what was said was that we're told to do things hard, study hard, work hard. Why not do things joyfully, read joyfully, work joyfully, write joyfully? And when I try to bring that to it, I I don't feel like I'm on a deadline and I'm under pressure to absorb everything I'm reading to find the right way to give context to something I'm trying to present. Just do it joyfully, get into the fun of it. And maybe that's, maybe I can do that. Maybe that's why it sounds like I'm having fun when I'm a a bundle of nerves. That's why I sound like, you know, I don't have a care in the world when I have constant rumination going on in my head. I'm not trying to fake people out, but I'm just trying to apply some of these things that we learn here in our recovery communities. Hey, do you want to be on the show? Please send us an email at ihave12questions at gmail.com and 12 is the number one, two. And we will look it over and reach out to you and set up a time to do your interview. We can't wait to read your emails and hear from you and meet you. Thanks. I love that. It It's such a shift in perspective of joy, you know, joyfully instead of, instead of hard, because we're a society that just places so much uh, weight around achievement and almost like it doesn't count if you didn't win. And, you know, that's part of the reason why people will lie, cheat, steal, step on the throats of other people to win, you know, because they forget like, Oh, there's God, I hope there's more to it than that. Right. Um, 
And so, and I can speak for myself too. I'm an overthinker. I wake up with racing thoughts. I go to sleep with racing thoughts. I'm trying to check off a bunch of lists and that's sort of my natural state, even as a child. Um, so I need to meditate and exercise and do all these things to off, to offset, you know, that, that state. Um, and it doesn't make it go away, but it absolutely makes it more manageable. Um, and I think using and drinking for me too, it was a way, it was a way to quiet my mind, you know, to make all that, make all that activity just stop or slow down so I could, um, <laughs> relax air quotes and get arrested and stuff like that. Very relaxing. But anyways, um, but that's, that's how I blew off steam. It's how I socialized. It's how I checked out. And when you quit, you kind of look around and, you know, it's challenging and it's, it's interesting. And, um, there's a whole new inner world for me. Anyway, there was a whole new inner world that I, I hadn't visited in a very, very long time. So I love that perspective of, of joyfully doing something and giving it meaning. Instead of being sad that I have to do this and I'd like to do something fun, doing it joyfully, just I bring the fun to whatever I'm doing, whether it's doing the dishes or whether it's exercise or whether it's reading and researching or whether it's, uh, you know, having a few laughs with my friends. You age out of some of this stuff, right? And I think this whole idea of doing life joyfully it doesn't matter where you're at in life or what your limitations are. There's a way to just have a better attitude about, you know, what's going on. And we we can't control everything that's going on. So we, we can control, you know, how we relate to it. Right. And to remind us, to remind myself not to be so stressed out. That's all mostly of my own making and ruminations, as you call it, Um it's, you know, it's crazy making, but also once you're aware of it, especially during meditation, if you're doing that every single day, which I have been for years and I, I'm not good at it, uh, but I do it. And I think it really does help. I feel like I'm picking up the top of my head and peeking in there and just looking at it as an observer and being like, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on in there, you know, but it doesn't mean you have to act on any of it. It's just, you know, it's, it's the mind doing what the mind does. Right. Um, okay. Next question. So how, where did you learn how to write? Ernest Kurtz did your foreword, which is awesome. Um, and I don't know if he's been a huge influence in your writing and your recovery, but, um, where'd you learn how to write? In the, the style of education I grew up in, I did not think I was a good writer because I couldn't spell. So I would give a composition in and it would have a, a 90 minus spelling errors, 65. And I go, well, I guess I'm not a very good writer. And we can argue whether uh, a composition exercise is an exercise in creativity or if it's all about the form and the craft. But the, the point was, I wasn't encouraged by the results I got in English class, but I, I insisted on doing it I, because I always want to know more. So uh, part of my career has been in the financial uh, planning world. And so 
I want to interview people who have been at it for more years than I have. I uh, got involved in the Canadian uh, billiard world. And so I would go to all of these tournaments and I started covering, uh, you know, nine ball and eight ball and snooker tournaments and writing for Chalk and Q magazine. And I would take courses uh, at community colleges. I had a great teacher. I think his name was Hugh McDonald. He was the one-time editor of the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail. And um, he, yeah, he had an interesting career, but he was always writing. He, he would say things like, he never could afford writer's block. He had bills to pay, right? You know, And so it, he really treated it as a uh, like a, a blue collar job, just do the work, right? And there are no great writers. There never has been, but there are a handful of very clever rewriters. So just write it and rewrite it, learn the craft. And I kind of did that. Nobody sees, you know, the first draft of, uh, you know, uh, April 4th daily reflections. They just see the finished product. But it really is a matter of being teachable, like taking your work, letting other people read it and criticize it, and not taking that personally, seeing that as an opportunity. And some people aren't teachable in that way. They are offended that someone doesn't like their song, or they think it should have been in a different beats per minute, or they they say that is a cliche rhyme, you shouldn't use it. And you can get caught up in that, who do you think you are, blah, blah, blah. Or you can just take it all in, and it might not change that song you already wrote, but it'll certainly influence the next one you write. So I just, I'm a student of the craft and, and I, everything I prepare to write, I think I'm unqualified to write and uh, someone else would do a better job than me, but I keep going in this forward motion and I uh, respond to this self-doubt I have with action. And we learned that. Where did I learn that? I learned that in the rooms, right? Yes, absolutely. And I love that in your book. Um, also, from the preface, you were saying that, you know, when you first came in, there was no shortage of daily meditation books for addicts who are predisposed to a worldview that absolutely includes a deity. Um, in fact, it's it's very Christian and the roots are Oxford group and all that, you know, I won't get into all the AA history, but, um, so you were looking for a reflection, daily reflection book that was not based on a mono, monotheistic worldview. Um, and you couldn't find it. So you, you wrote one and that it took you four years. But what I love is that it's philosophy, religion, comedy, science, um, folk wisdom, 12 and 12, you know, stuff from the, from 12 step rooms, um, and the 12 and 12 in our literature. Um, and that, you know, you saw something that was missing and you created it. And I just, I really, I really love that. Um, like I said, it's helped me a lot. And I know it helps a lot of people. And, and it's not discipline, it's compulsion. I, I it just, I was driven to do it. And, you know, someone I interviewed who's a songwriter, uh, I asked them about so why a, a new record? Did you not feel spent and finished when you finished your last record? And they said, when they get ready for writing, they look at their own music collection of all of the artists they love. 
and they look at that collection and they say, what's missing? What's not there? And then they go and create the, the sort of missing piece. But the other thing is it's impossible, even if you try to copy something, I want to rewrite Stairway to Heaven, you know, like a song just like that. You're not going to recreate Stairway to Heaven. You're going to create something else. It was one of the things you mentioned Ernie Kurtz would say, don't not do something because somebody else did it. They're not going to do it in your voice, from your perspective, with your uh, limits and abilities. Do it, right? Add it to the canon of works about that particular topic. I always think, oh, I, I did my research and someone else had already written that, so I'm not going to. Uh, and that's, uh, that, that's, a, that's not a rule. <laughs> so why do I impose it on myself? Exactly. I think that's so common. Yeah. It reminds me of your addicted to Zoom parody that you did, which was hysterical. And I was like, okay, yes, this is funny, but these lyrics are legitimate. Like you listen to every single word. And this is a real song with heft and levity and actual writing. Um, and I, I've always loved that you're writing and, you know, all the stuff you do with Rebellion Dogs publishing. Um, it has this feeling of levity and humor and being in the present moment and not taking yourself too seriously. Um, and, and having that learner's mind and being a perpetual student. So um, that kind of stuff inspires me. And it reminds me like, hey man, you don't have to know everything. Who cares? Just ask questions or say, I don't know. It's not that big of a deal. Looking through all these readings, I've I've laughed, I've cried, I've kind of spun out sometimes on all of it if I get too much into my headspace. But, you know, it's everything from the Tao to Buddha to ancient philosophers and actors and artists and, and poets. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's just very interesting and very diverse, and it covers a lot of cultures too, which I also appreciate. So do you have um, a favorite? You know, the ones that make me cry all the time are children's stories. The Velveteen Rabbit is as good a philosophy of living that I've ever read. Dr. Zeus, uh, you know, when people can reduce something to the simplest way of explaining it to five-year-old children, that's genius. Easy reading. Easy reading is difficult writing. That was another lesson one of my uh, uh, writer instructors uh, told me. Because we read it and we go, well, look, the, the words just fell out of Paul McCartney's mouth or, uh, you know, uh, um, so-and-so's, you know, just wrote it the way we saw it in the book. But that, that's not the case, right? It's, it's, it's going back and saying uh, what's repetitive, what is a side tangent that, that has to be cut out, it doesn't belong there. Uh, what's a, a better way of showing the audience instead of telling the audience? Because no one likes to be told, but we sure love to sit down and be shown, right? Mm, I love the Velveteen Rabbit. Yeah, we like to lean in and listen to a story. You know, and we don't want to be preached at. And there's a lot of finesse as a writer to simplify things, to, to help them be understandable and palatable for ourselves and for other people. Um, and, you know, that's another question I have for you. In, the, in our world at large, there's just so much 
division and um, it seems to get deeper at times. And I've even seen some of that show up in the rooms, which is really scary because that's, that's like a, you know, that's a rescue boat for people Um, in factions of recovery communities. um, You know, we can't afford to be infighting. So I've, I've seen people leave traditional meetings because of the religion stuff or because of this or because of that. And to me, I don't, I don't, I don't look at that person and go, Oh God, just get with the program. I look at that person and go, Oh my gosh, they might die or something terrible might happen if they aren't able to find the help they need in the way that they need it. Right. And so, um, you know, to your point, you're obviously, you understand it, um, (laughs) really well, you literally wrote the book, but talking about the spaciousness, you know, and that all inclusive, um, spiritual realm, how do we take that mentality and bring it into our recovery spaces? Now, remembering what I said about falling in the ditch as you're driving down the road, I can't always maintain this, but something I uh, borrowed from a dear friend of mine, a recovery medicine doctor in Vancouver, who said, Joe, stop fighting the darkness and just shine a light. And when you do that, you don't notice the dissenters, you don't notice the... um, uh, people who are creating obstacles, you just you, you just work around all of the things that come your way. Okay, I'm going to have to turn left. I can't go straight. I'm uh, this person isn't listening. I'll ask that person, and it's a happier way to do things than constantly. Like I have a critical mind, and I I constantly see uh, you know order and disorder, and I can see fault and things and that type of thing, but but. When I'm in that sort of critical mind, all I see is the problems. All I see is uh, the potential negative consequences. Instead of just when I'm shining a light, right? I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm living it. I'm not analyzing it. And who cares how many people follow? Who cares how many people agree with me? When people adore me, they're, view is distorted. When people despise me, their view is distorted. I can't take it personally. What they're expressing is their conditioning. It's That is a reflection of them, not of me. And so I have to find my sort of inner, you know, place in this world from within, not from cues I get from how people are reacting to me. So I, I try to just shine a light and I, and when I start fighting the darkness, I just remind you're fighting the darkness again, Joe. <laughs> Time to shine a light. <laughs> so, do you have a favorite daily ritual? No, I am. I tend to be. Uh, I, I seem to fight structure, and uh, like you know, I worked for ho- from home before most people work from home and I I'm always doing different things so different things are getting my attention sometimes it's a research project sometimes it's uh, work demands sometimes it's uh, people I know in recovery who are in need of help and so my uh, my attention doesn't go the same place all of the time and I know a lot of people who live a far more structured life than 
mine is, and their life appears more peaceful and uh, more disciplined. But I don't know if that's the reality of it or just how it appears to me. But I do know that you don't uh, gain discipline um, by you know structure. You you do the little disciplines, and that creates the sort of structure you want in your life to whatever extent you want it. Firm on principle, flexible on method. Right. That's what the twelve traditions preach. Right. You know, there's no absolutes. Absolutely. No, that's great advice. And something I need to hear, you know, and put into practice better because I have a tendency to create a lot of structure and then I get really rigid and then I'm like, oh God, this is so overwhelming. Why do I do all this? And then like burn it to the ground and go create a different structure. Um, I'm, I'm, I can be restless in that way. And I'm certainly aware of that. Um, and a certain amount of structure offers, you know, safety, but then it starts to feel restrictive. So I just love this idea that you're bringing with, you know, balance and flexibility. And yes, there's some structure there. There's also spontaneity and there's fun. Um, and if something's not working, you can make an adjustment, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect or nothing at all, right? There's so much space in between those. That's a great perspective. It's, um, you know, back to that sort of car analogy, right? You can, if you're driving at night, you can only see what the uh, headlights will show you. You can still get all the way across the country, uh, but um, you you just have to deal with what you got, right? You have to manage, you know, the environment, your own feelings, your own needs, your own uh, internal clock. You got to got to work all that stuff out as you go. There's no way to set it and forget about it. It's this constant readjusting of, uh, like you were talking about, you love the structure because it gives you a sense of order, but then you miss the spontaneity. And when you have the spontaneity without the order, you drift into chaos. We all do. And then that chaos can lead to self-destructiveness and and too much order that leads to rigidity. So we're all on this balancing beam, not uh, trying to get uh, lean too far left or right, or we're going to fall off the beam. Well, your book, you know, you continue to encourage respect for all views. And this is very kind of Zen laid back. Um, yeah. Approach. And one of the, one of my favorite things that you talk about is that you say that beliefs are like favorite colors. Um, if I like green and you like yellow, this shouldn't interfere with our discussion about addiction and recovery. And I, it's like, yeah, why do we make such a big deal of that? Yeah. Colors are so arbitrary. You know, no one is trying to rail against people who like red. <laughs> Well, these types of things, like like I shared a process that I used for myself to bring me back to center. Here's an example. I understand my triggers. When people share their story, no matter what their worldview is, no matter what their experience is, I enjoy listening to their story and their viewpoints. When they use the word we, like the proverbial we did this, we need this, we have to that. I, My brain immediately goes, hey, buddy, don't include me in your we, okay? 
I'm I'm not a joiner, right? Uh, or or even worse, you you need to do this, and if you don't do this, you're not going to get that, and that triggers me too. But no matter what pronoun they're using, they are always and only sharing their own personal perspective and their own experience and ultimately you know i will give them the enough credit that they have as much love and respect for me as i have for them if they're saying these things they and they're impassioned about them what what can i take from it right but um it's just a pronoun, and I get caught in the pronoun and miss the message that was lost. Right, right, exactly. It, it, and people, you know, this happens all the exactly. time. Exactly. Like everywhere, right? In traffic, at That's work, right. with family, like in relationships, it's triggers are going to happen. We're human beings. We have a lot of feelings um, and a lot of experiences and filters that make each individual person react differently. Um, but if you're in that headspace, it, it can feel, everything can feel like a personal attack. If you're worried about, you know, caring about what people think and trying to do this and, and, and that. Um, and so instead of asking, hold on a second, let's look for the similarities, not the difference. What is the message here? What's going on with me? And, and kind of getting away from that explosive reactive thing that, um, that for me is always right there under the surface, you know, and I, I work on that quite a bit. Um, and we all have tendencies, you know, I speak for myself, but you know, I look around sometimes in my life and I, I find myself surrounded by people who are a lot like me um, and we share the same worldviews and we're politically aligned and maybe we live this sober type of lifestyle and whatever, that's great. It's really comfortable, but it can also get really stagnant and unhealthy to the point of being an echo chamber. And I'm, I'm not unique in this, obviously. Um, but then if you get too used to that, when you're out in the world or you're having to, you know, resolve conflict at work or, or different things, work through rough patches and relationships, that trigger can feel, it can just make you kind of, I don't know, fly off the handle because I haven't been exposed to it in so long. Cause I've been living in this safe little bubble where I don't, <laughs> I don't really get challenged. People don't, I don't challenge people cause we all kind of agree. Right. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think that's healthy, um, for me. So, um, you know, when I'm in the middle of one of those feelings of being triggered or upset, uh, upset about something, um, if I don't have a great reaction, you know, I really have to sit there and, and ask myself some questions and go inward and, and do what the literature talks about. That's right. How do you do when you're driving in traffic and, you know, dealing with uh, your uh, unmet uh, financial obligations and, you know, and the difficulty in life when you're being criticized or, uh, someone seems to be impeding what you need and want to do. <laughs> okay, so a couple more questions and I'll wrap it up. So um, one of my questions I have for you is about your new book coming out and it's tied to the acronym of CHIME. And so please tell us more about this. Mm, you've done some research. <laughs> CHIME, is that's what you're referring to, right? Yeah. CHIME uh, stands for connection, hope, identity, meaning, and empowerment. And um, it's being used by academics as a measure of 
not only the quality of sobriety, but as a predictive uh, way of measuring what likely outcomes are going to be. And I, I find that these five things, and, and I didn't invent them, uh, someone named uh, Mary Lemke uh, was using them as a, as a model for mental health. And it definitely applies to addiction and recovery. And when I look at these things as a collective, right, they don't necessarily have to be done in order, but they do have a natural order to them. But they, they, they have to be done in harmony. And when you see these things working in someone's sobriety, you go, yeah, of course. And when you see them out of kilter in any of these things, you go, oh, that's a danger, Will Rogers, danger. There's an old reference that most of your audience won't know. So let's just, let's just forget about that for now. And the other thing we see in this is it, you can see this in every modality of recovery, whether they're following an eightfold path or positive affirmations or they're doing a 12-step program, or they're applying their 12-step program in a, a secular way or a, you know, a supernatural way, you still see that it starts with the connection. And you know, some people have oversimplified that, right? The idea that uh, you know, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection, and people you know, they love their bumper sticker answers to life, right? Oh, isn't that simple reductionism? Let's have more of that. But I, I can get connection from the crack house where I'm, I can get connection from my bad influences. I can get connection, you know, no, everyone knows your name at the local bar, right? You know, there's, I need People who model pro-social behavior, that's the connection I need for recovery. So, so the connection has to be sort of um, managed. And, and from that connection comes the hope. Hope is contagious. We don't muster hope. We catch it. And we catch it from other people in recovery. And, uh, and, and that's why I came to AA planning to leave AA until hope happened. And the hope happened from feeling connected to people just like me. And the idea of uh, identity, I was just writing about this before we were talking. And, you know, I had an identity as a party animal, as a howler. And I thought giving that up for sobriety was uh, to be without an identity. But then I had an identity as a person in recovery. And to the extent that I can keep that open, it's very helpful. But if I see that as I'm a secular AA and those big book thumpers are going to ruin AA, that's not helpful. Right? That's the narcissism of small differences, right? They're helping people find sobriety. I'm going to try to help people find uh, sobriety. So identity also has to be managed in a balanced way. And meaning comes from doing meaningful things. And, and there was no way of knowing my first day in an AA meeting that, that the worst things that were happening to me, the things I was most ashamed of, would be things that I would talk unabashedly about 
and be my greatest gift to other people and give me the greatest meaning in life. And empowerment is a touchy word in some circles. You're powerless, blah, blah, blah. It says we were powerless. <laughs> and our life was unmanageable. So the idea of empowerment comes in all forms of recovery. And if people don't have it, they're constantly dependent on meetings, on a sponsor, uh, on living in a dry environment. And, and I'm not dependent on any of those things. I can be where the rock and roll is happening. I, I can uh, go without meetings for a period of time if I'm doing something that is honorable and meaningful. So those are the things that I find uh, um, are true in every recovery community I've been in. Smart recovery, Life Ring, what I hear from uh, She Recovers or Women for Sobriety. People who got sober, quote unquote, on their own. A guy named David Best is nobody gets sober alone. They might not join a club, but they have a supportive home environment and or a supportive work environment, uh, a recovery-oriented you know, system of care that was given to them that so, sort of supports them in getting up on their feet. Uh, you know, like, you know, people who are introverts have to find a way to get recovery too. They might be finding it listening to this podcast. They might be lurking in a Zoom meeting. The idea of, you know, walking into a you know, a community center or an Alano club or a church basement uh, into a room full of strangers. Some people are never going to do that. They're going to die before they do that. But there are other ways to do it that isn't exactly the way I did it. So, yeah, I'm pretty enthusiastic about these things and I feel overwhelmed by them. Uh, and uh, I'm sort of working on this sort of uh, re recovery manual just because. You know, not everyone who's in peer-to-peer -peer recovery goes to the NADAC conference and listens to the latest research because, you know, they'd rather stick needles in their eyes. <laughs> you know, let's go for a coffee and, uh, you know, play guitar, you know. But I love all that nerdy stuff and I love all that peer-to-peer -peer stuff, uh, the wisdom of the rooms and the uh, science of recovery, I think there's a place to find a middle for that. Harm reduction and uh, uh, safe supply and abstinence. There's, a, there's room for all of these uh, uh, approaches to recovery. And I, I'm trying to just not be an expert, but, but right from a, a, a peer who's, you know, just sort of seen a lot and digested a lot and try to get it all in sort of one book <laughs> that, that isn't 400 frigging pages. Oh, wow. That's going to be a big book. Yes. Yeah. We can all help each other and all these issues that you just rattled off um, because they touch each other. There's intersections all over the place. Um, and if somebody comes into a certain recovery environment and they feel ousted or ostracized or like, oh God, I cannot align myself with that view or this view or whatever. Um, you know, that's, that's not great. Uh, so there has to be a place where it's safe to ask about all these different things. And, um, like for example, in Houston, an extension of my home group, um, 
down there back in the day, they had a P11 meeting for people who have legitimate prescriptions that they need to take, you know, for mental health disorders and all kinds of other conditions. Um, People need to have space to talk about those things safely without getting shamed or having somebody say, oh, you don't need, you don't need the medication. You know, the steps fix everything. God fixes everything. You know, that's, that's unfair. Um, and, and it's also dangerous to be dismissive of mental health disorders. Yeah. Or you're not sober if you're on Suboxone. Um, and all that kind of stuff. We're not doctors. <laughs> We're just, you know, people trying to stay sober. Um, so that's, that's crazy to me. And I'm obviously very opinionated. I get a little <clears throat> fired up about it because that is not a good environment for people to get sober in. Um, and so I love that people are asking these questions and expanding horizons, um, and so the, the acronym of CHIME and the way you really broke down each component, um, that's fantastic. And I, you know, I can't wait, I can't wait to, to read it because we all have our preconceived notions of, of you know, what words mean or, or what connotations they may bring for each person. Um, but as you explained it, that just added so much context. So I'm really looking forward to that. You know, I, it, like I should be further ahead than I am, but I, when I'm writing, the dishes are always clean, right? The, the drawers are always orderly. I, I always find other things that have to be done right now because I'm avoiding the great challenge of not knowing how to get there. And, and writing is always not knowing how to get there. Uh, so I, I don't know when it's coming out. I, I, you know, I'm embarrassed that a daily reflection book would take more than a year to do. Joe, you do a page a day. How difficult can that be? Yeah. Wasn't there literally a reading yesterday or a day before about procrastination from the procrastinator's handbook? <laughs> I think it was the entry for January 26th. Yeah. So every page I'm telling on myself. Right. You know, that's that's where the wisdom comes from, the the humility to just sort of be vulnerable, to expose myself. Yeah. And I think a lot of the scholarly articles in the journals are like um, it's hard to read that. It's like legalese or whatever you call it in the, you know, neuroscience or medical community. It's hard to understand what they're saying. Um, and so it, I love it when people write a book or put a tool out in the world that's just a layman's perspective, you know, or these anecdotal stories that we can actually access and understand and relate to um, and that they line up with our own experience because that's that's heart space stuff. Right. That's when we're like, oh, right. When it hits us in the heart and we can say me, too, as opposed to a lot of the stuff that comes out of academia. Um, so that's that's awesome. There's so much and it's so inaccessible, right? You've either got to, you know, be a member of faculty to get the whole report. Uh, you need a degree that in uh, statistical analysis to understand the uh, outcomes of these uh, randomized uh, uh, studies. But somewhere in the middle, we can find that these studies do uh, match our folk wisdom of uh, the coffee pot and uh, 85-year-old book, or forget that, go to the Stoics, right? You know, a 2,000-year-old book where they seem to be doing this emotional bypass sometimes, which I'm all for. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so like everything's an imperfect uh, attempt to 
say uh, what needs to be said and, you know, I'll die trying. Yeah. There's, there's just no better feeling um, than connection and being able to use that to help other people. Um, Cause we really are all in this together, you know, and I love this aspect of art and writing and music and poetry and all these other things that can come in that we can all use and incorporate because we have a lot of time on our hands when we get sober <laughs> and a lot of money. We're just like, oh, wow, I need to pick up a hobby. Um, it's, it's so interesting to watch people kind of come back to life. You know, the light comes back on behind their eyes. They're excited again about nature and music and art and love and, you know, animals and just all this, all this beautiful stuff that, you know, I missed out on when I was drinking, I was numb. Um, I just cannot thank you enough for joining me and for sharing your wisdom and just for being such a delightful human being. So thank you for that. And if it's okay, I would like to take us out um, with another excerpt, which is out of the preface as well, and it's on page 12. You say, I don't hope or expect to find bobble-headed agreement with every thesis on every day. Agree or disagree, be inspired or be skeptical. Please treat these pages as part of a never-ending dialogue. I didn't start this conversation. Let's keep it going. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. Your Your Honor, I stand by what I wrote 10 years ago. <laughs> and I cannot thank you enough for joining the podcast uh, world. Thanks for your service. <laughs>